right now on Matter of Fact. So help me God. A new administration takes on the work of the nation, embracing the history-making moments. I Kamala Davy Harris. Charting a new course, intent on untangling the immigration policies of the Trump era. But a stroke of the executive pen won't undo the damage to thousands of asylum seekers living in limbo at the border. We take you to Juarez, Mexico, where lives are on hold until America decides whether or not it will welcome them. Then, without Trump, what does the Republican Party stand for? We're reaching a kind of breaking point in the political system. We explore the reality of third party movements. But first, how will Vice President Kamala Harris reshape the future of American politics? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Democrats now control Congress and the White House. It's the most power they've had in a decade. But the Senate is evenly divided, and that means that Vice President Kamala Harris will break any tie votes. She's a first of firsts, the first woman vice president, the first black woman, the first woman of South Asian descent. With a split Senate, she'll be a central player in making President Biden's agenda a reality. Tal Copen covers Vice President Harris as the Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle, which is also owned by Hearst, which is our parent company. Tal Copen, thank you so much for talking with me. I remember when I was a reporter in San Francisco in the early 1990s, and someone started talking about this woman, Kamala Harris, and they said to me, she's going to be a star, just you watch. And of course, their prediction came true, politically speaking. One has to imagine that as the first female vice president, the first black vice president, the first black female vice president, the first South Asian vice president, uh, that she's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, anyway, um, how do you think she'll deal with that? She has been the first person like her in literally every step of her elected office career. She was the first person like her to ever be San Francisco district attorney, uh, California attorney general, uh, representing California in the Senate. It was, you know, an entire career of firsts and now as vice president. And so I think she goes in clear-eyed uh, regarding the scrutiny that will be on her, not to mention uh, everyone wondering her political future. No one expects this to be her destination. They expect her to want to run for president when, you know, Biden, who takes office, is the oldest president ever to begin uh, his presidency, you know, decides to exit the stage. She's, she's presumed to be the standard bearer. So the scrutiny will be intense. Uh, she will say that there's nothing intimidating to her about that scrutiny. It seems to me that Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris, represents this concept of, of multiculturalism as a good, powerful, worthwhile thing in America. Demographers predict that in the not-too-distant future, a majority of Americans will be in, in multiracial or in multiracial families. And so in some ways, Kamala Harris actually represents where this country is headed. And now we see her carrying that forward into the White House and a confidence in being all of what she is. 
How do you think that's going to play then into her relationship with the new president, Joe Biden? They both say that they want to use the Obama-Biden presidency as a guide. Uh, Joe Biden was a very you know, integral player in that administration. And he wants a vice president that is a sounding board that that you know, raises questions. Uh, he wouldn't have chosen Kamala Harris if he didn't want to draw from her perspectives. Obviously, she comes in with deep understanding of the criminal justice system. I would expect her to be a player on immigration. It's an area she really carved out for herself in the Senate. But there's going to be some growing into the role to do. You know, I, I would fully expect Biden does not seem threatened by her in any way, nor should he be. You know, he's reached the pinnacle of his career. He wants to make her, you know, the standard bearer of the Democratic Party going forward. But it may take some time for her to sort of find that role and that voice uh, that she's going to have in the administration. How does she get along with the Republicans in the Senate and, and Republicans in Congress across the board? Right before she ran for president, I um, was writing a profile of her time in the Senate. And I went around and tried to find every Republican I could to ask them their impression of her. And universally across the board, they had many complaints on policy or tactics. They didn't they didn't love her questioning of Brett Kavanaugh during the Supreme Court fight, but all of them said she's warm, she's personable, she treats them with respect, uh, she's whip smart, they all said, and anyone who underestimates her will do so at their peril. And it doesn't get as much attention, but she has worked across the aisle. She actually worked with Rand Paul uh, on some criminal justice reform stuff early on in the administration. So the the, the friendliness is there. Uh the partisanship is also there. Tal Copin, thank you for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Next on Matter of Fact, the skyrocketing price tag for a White House necessity. And what does the future hold for 70,000 migrants seeking asylum at the Mexican border? But first... I went online, changed my voter registration, and became unaffiliated. Chaos, conflict, and a clash of ideals. Could this be the election that splits the major parties for good? century, the path to the White House has gone through the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans. Is this what our founding fathers intended? After each presidential election, you hear rumblings that it's time for a viable third party. Today, in the post-Trump era, many are asking whether the Republican Party will hold together or splinter, and the Biden administration is preparing for a push from those who feel that the Democratic Party needs to be more progressive. Matter of fact, special correspondent Joey Chen takes a look into potential breakups in both parties. Lancaster County, Pennsylvania is known for its bucolic scenery, its Amish buggies, and its reliably Republican politics. It's been uh, run by Republicans countywide for 150 years since the party was started here. You've been as true blue conservative Republican as anybody. Yeah, I've actually been a, a Republican since I was before I could even vote. In a place with deep roots in U.S. history, this may be the symbol of a new American revolution. Ethan Demme was once hailed as the youngest leader ever of the local Republican Party, but he just dropped out of it. The, the violence at the Capitol, 
right after the words of Donald Trump. And at that point, I was like, this truly is a party of Trump. Um, and it's not one that I can, I can stay a part of. So what'd you do? I went online, changed my voter registration, and became unaffiliated. So now I'm a, an independent. Echoing a mini exodus of Republican voters in Lancaster County and across the nation, with even nationally influential Republicans questioning their futures in the party. But breaking up the party isn't as easy as it sounds. Barry Burden directs the University of Wisconsin's Elections Research Center. Is this a final fracture of the Republican Party? I don't think so. There were a lot of predictions back in 2016, but maybe to all of our surprise, the party hung together. Still, Burden points to a churn in Republican ranks during the Trump years as reason enough for the GOP to recalculate its message. Letting the party splinter runs against their interests. Any group that threatens to abandon the party, I think they will make overtures to to try to bring on board. So this is not a moment for Democrats to gloat. That's right. Democrats have to work to keep their coalition together as well. Freed from a focus on simply defeating Trump, progressive activists are now urging their favorites to dump the Democratic Party, too. They have their hands tied by the party establishment. And so that's why we need those individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like Bernie Sanders, to be free of corporate-funded politicians dictating to them what they need to do. Organizing a movement for a people's party, Nick Brana's team has ambitious plans to field candidates in the 2022 midterms and a presidential contender in 2024. Are you viable? Absolutely. Over the last 15 years, you've seen tens of millions of Americans leave the Democratic and Republican parties and become independent. So now there's an ocean of independence that doesn't have representation, and we're reaching a kind of breaking point in the political system. But in all of U.S. history, popular discontent has never been enough to rally a third-party upset. Things like ballot access, campaign finance rules, the rules for getting into political debates, most of those are structured in a way to favor the two big parties and to put hurdles in the way of small parties. Also having a presidential election system with an electoral college discourages third parties. So I think the United States deserves more than two options for voters, but at the moment, the culture and the structures that are in place make that very difficult. The most successful third party presidential contenders, Teddy Roosevelt and his Bull Moose Party, Alabama's segregationist Governor George Wallace, billionaire Ross Perot, and activist Ralph Nader all came from vastly different political agendas, but they shared some common traits. Typically, the party needs a charismatic leader at the top. Then there needs to be a set of issues or maybe one core issue that the major parties are not addressing. And you also need money. Tremendous amounts of money. It is, especially running for president, if we're thinking about a presidential campaign, it is a massive undertaking simply to get on the ballot in all 50 states. A massive undertaking, but in a time of unprecedented political upheaval, could independent voices finally force real change in the political landscape? For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Next, President Biden promised immediate changes at the border, but thousands of migrants hoping to call America home are still stuck in Mexico. 
Joe Biden has delivered on a campaign promise to introduce sweeping immigration reform. He ended President Trump's travel ban on mostly Muslim and African countries, paused construction of a wall along the southern border, and stopped a move to exclude undocumented people from the census. But some actions can't be easily undone with the stroke of a pen, like MPP, Migrant Protection Protocols, better known as Remain in Mexico. Under the program, the U.S. sent nearly 70,000 asylum seekers back into Mexican border cities to wait for their court dates. Biden paused MPP, but it's unclear what will happen to people who've been waiting in Mexico. Our correspondent Jessica Gomez reports from Juarez on the people who are stuck between the policies of two presidents. From El Paso, Texas, you can see the sprawling city of Juarez, Mexico. Passing the bottleneck of traffic waiting to cross into the United States, we make the 10-minute walk across the border. They has a backpack with drugs. There are driver Luis describing the cartel violence that has plagued the city. More than 1,600 people murdered here last year alone. To the west, the poor community of an opera hugging the U.S. border. That's where we find one of several shelters in the city housing U.S. asylum seekers. Among them, this family who left their home in El Salvador without telling a soul, escaping a country suffering from poverty and gang violence. My uncle was killed and they came to the house to kill him. And then also they tried to recruit my 13-year-old son. For 17 months, the family of five has been sharing one bedroom at the shelter, waiting for a U.S. judge to hear their asylum case. Their kids still traumatized after the family says they were kidnapped and extorted by Mexican police on the way here. They separated me and my husband from our children. They put us in a different room from our children. And while we were in that room, I could hear my children crying. It's a familiar story for immigrants who make it to the U.S. border seeking asylum. Under Trump's Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, that President Biden just ended, instead of being housed in detention centers or released to sponsors, like family members, they've been sent back to Mexico, often into dangerous border cities. What we found was inadequate shelters, not enough shelters, um, many people kidnapped and beyond kidnapping, um, horrific stories of, of sexual assault and rape. But we don't know if the client has actually returned to her home country. In El Paso, Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, which provides legal help to immigrants, celebrating the end of MPP. But questions remain about what happens next to their clients already in the program. With fewer than 1% of those in MPP granted asylum and hearings suspended since last spring because of COVID-19, there's growing desperation across the border. We are asking for the humane processing of asylum seekers. We are asking for them to be able to have their freedom, to be able to live with their sponsors, to have true access to attorneys. We know that statistically, when a person is represented, they show up to their court 99% of the time. Biden is going to face innumerable challenges. Sarah Pierce is an analyst with the Migration Policy Institute, a nonpartisan think tank. She says fully unraveling Trump's bureaucratic wall at the border, policies like MPP, will take time and resources. 
and pose a political balancing act for the new president. At the same time, Biden will have to do that while trying not to invite a surge of asylum seekers at the southern border, which right now we're really ill-prepared to handle. So I think ending MPP, just saying that you're no longer going to enroll migrants in MPP is quite simple, but dealing with those individuals who are currently or were previously enrolled is going to be a lot more difficult. Back in Juarez, at the shelter, little boys from different countries bonding over what's familiar, a game of soccer. Birthdays and holidays have passed. Our family from El Salvador afraid to leave the shelter and afraid to go home. If I would go back, I would probably be there for like one or two days, up to three, and then the third day would they would have my funeral. But with the U.S. border in sight, and now possibly within reach, there's new hope. I tell them all the time to be patient, to trust God, and hopefully we'll see ourselves on the other side. In Juarez, Mexico, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Coming up, the Flying White House gets a makeover. But first, how a landfill will become a source of power for this historic city. Now to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You Are Too Busy. The energy capital of the world is living up to its name. Houston will soon be home to the largest urban solar farm in the country. A former landfill in the Sunnyside neighborhood, once considered an eyesore, is being transformed into the solar farm. The landfill has been closed for decades. The city's decision to put a landfill in a historically black neighborhood is cited as an example of environmental racism in the region and in the entire country. The city decided to lease the land to a developer, around 240 acres, for a dollar a year. And while many communities oppose solar farms, fearing it's going to lower their property values, many in the Sunnyside community rallied behind the idea, saying they want to be a model for the entire nation. The solar farm is projected to power 5,000 homes. Still ahead, the most recognizable plane in the world gets an upgrade. Finally, if all goes as planned, in a few years, the Biden administration will get new, upgraded Air Force One jets. The planes will be a newer model of specially configured Boeing 747 jets. Now, lots of the details, obviously, are confidential for safety reasons, but here's what we do know. The new Air Force One jets will have a wider wingspan. They'll weigh more, but they'll also be faster and travel a longer distance without having to refuel. Think from D.C. to Hong Kong. The estimated price tag is about $5.2 billion, and that cost covers the two jets, engineering, a new hangar at Andrews Air Force Base, and much more. The current fleet has been in use since George H.W. Bush's administration. The new Air Force One jets are expected to take flight in 2024. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.